Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 135. Here come the Nazis. Alright, we have come to the point where finally the Nazis become an unavoidable part of German politics. Longtime listeners will remember I had to split off the early history of the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler personally because they simply weren't of enough importance to cover them in detail during the history of 1920s Germany proper. They were a micro-party that had initially lodged themselves the depths of the far-right Volkish movement that comprised many other micro-parties just like them. Their street fighters, the SA, or more commonly known as the Brown Shirts, were themselves just another paramilitary outfit among many. The disaster of the Beer Hall Push should have ruined the fortunes of the NSDAP, the proper acronym of the Nazi party, and swept them off to the dustbin. And honestly, events that immediately followed showed that was highly likely. In the mid to latter 1920s, Hitler was able to wrest control of the Volkish movement and largely subsume it into the Nazi party. But he did so just as that movement suffered a collapse in support that left them all on the fringes of politics. Only in 1928 did things turn even slightly, and as I mentioned last week, that year's election left the Nazis with only 2.5% of the vote and 12 representatives in the Reichstag. A showing, but a poor one. When people thought of the nationalist far-right, they thought of Alfred Hugenberg and his DNVP, not Hitler and the Nazis. But crisis has a funny way of turning the tables in ways unexpected by those at the top, and the economic decline suffered during 1928 and 29, followed by the full-blown collapse afterwards, opened a Pandora's box that left the conservative leadership of the country increasingly at the mercies of a terrible fringe movement they had discounted and indeed held in contempt. Keep in mind, the membership of the Nazis was filled with dead-enders, Men pulled from the streets, eager to use the party as an outlet for their own frustrations. And also, men that established politicians were loath to work with. Chief among those angry dead-enders was, of course, the failed artist Adolf Hitler. The process of achieving a Fuhrer-style absolute command of his movement in the vein of Benito Mussolini in Italy had almost been achieved, but was not quite complete. The Strasser brothers still commanded loyalty in what amounted to the party's intelligentsia, although Otto Strasser was barely involved with party business on account of him and Hitler always despising one another. Meanwhile, Gregor Strasser maintained a far more prominent position in the Nazi leadership. While he had nearly come into conflict with Hitler in the second half of the 20s, they had reached an understanding based on Gregor being relied upon to organize and centralize party activities across the nation, with Hitler remaining in ultimate leadership. The arrangement worked because Hitler was a chronically lazy man who was simply incapable of managing the slow, steady work of political organization and outreach. Hitler enjoyed giving long speeches and not letting anyone get a word in during conversations. That was his talent. The Strasser brothers represented what amounted to the left of the party, those who saw their mission as a revolutionary attack on the establishment and ergo liberal capitalism. Their position had attracted some support from the more urban north of the country, but that had created friction with Hitler and those around him. The politics of the Fuhrer were broader, focusing on uniting the country on racial grounds, purging the Marxists and Jews, and establishing a greater Germany in the East. 
Hitler wasn't exactly interested in serving the business establishment, but waffled on attacking them directly, seeing them as useful if they could be co-opted, and also a source of vital financial donations that kept the party going. Far more formidable, though, was the SA. The brown shirts were a rougher bunch than even the Nazi party rank and file, and counted among the most desperate among their membership. They had been set up to protect the party meetings and rallies back in the early days, then expanded into controlling the streets of whatever town they set up in, and as conditions in Germany grew worse, they started expanding into a true street army. And while they owed their loyalty to Hitler as Fuhrer, they did not feel beholden to the Nazi party itself. They were unbreakably linked, but they did not want to be treated as expendable muscle to advance the prospects of the party's membership. Their leader in 1930 was a man named Franz Pfeiffer von Solomon, a veteran of both World War I and the Free Corps battles that followed its aftermath. The SA, Pfeiffer von Solomon, and other characters will be touched on in more detail in a future episode, where I'll give a more thorough breakdown of the SA and also the early SS. But for our purposes here, just know that Pfeiffer von Solomon wanted the SA to be an independent, truly revolutionary organization, which was also something its members wanted as well. They were destitute, the status quo didn't serve them, and they were the ones risking their necks on the streets. They wanted a balancing of the scales, while its leaders wanted to dismantle the National Army entirely and replace it with the SA. This was a problem, as it alarmed authorities who might actually move against the SA, but Hitler was in a bind. He needed the street fighters just as much as they needed him to succeed on their behalf. Despite knowing that their insubordination was a danger, Hitler refrained from cracking the whip aside from occasionally making the personal appeal to their loyalty towards him, which, to be fair, was genuine, and despite their disappointments with their Fuhrer, the brown shirts identified with him and would accept his orders within their version of reason. Rounding out this little refresher on the Nazi party leadership are a series of much more loyal men. Rudolf Hess was Hitler's secretary and adjutant at this point, not personally powerful, but someone who couldn't be ignored because he was closest to Hitler. Hess was a simple man, and when I say that, I mean he was slow. But he was fiercely loyal to Hitler, which more than made up for his lack of intelligence, charisma, or political savvy. Hermann Goering did not have any special posting among the Nazis by 1930 besides being a member of the Reichstag. Nevertheless, Goering was still a national hero from World War I, and his force of personality served the Nazis well when engaging with other groups in the Reichstag. He was one of the faces of National Socialism and remained close to Hitler. Finally, I'll wrap this up with Joseph Goebbels. The club-footed man acted as the propaganda chief, Gauleiter, or regional leader of the Nazis in Berlin, and also a member of the Reichstag. Goebbels was one of the most active Nazi leaders in terms of pushing their message, and working in Berlin gave him a greater platform to work from. He was quick-witted and, aside from Hitler, the Nazis' best public speaker. While he had been dismissive of Hitler in the early days, he had quickly fallen under the spell of the Fuhrer and was deeply loyal to him. Despite frequent frustrations with how Hitler equivocated when the time came to actually make big decisions. Uh, there were other characters, of course, but these are the most important ones for now. So, these misfits, who had never enjoyed actual electoral success still thought of themselves as saviors of the German nation, even after a decade of being largely ignored. 
Aside from being swatted down instantly back in 1923, of course, but the circumstances of 1929 and after were far different than the ones that predominated even a year prior to that. The economy was sinking. The government was paralyzed. The people didn't expect the Weimar Republic to be able to save itself. And while the left of the nation increasingly gravitated towards the KPD, those who rejected a Marxist solution, even on the center, started looking seriously at the Nazis. Despite their poor showing in the 1928 elections, the Nazis and the SA were constant fixtures on the city streets, not just marching and shouting, but throwing up propaganda wherever they could. And their street battles against the communists and socialists demonstrated to the increasingly fearful middle and upper classes whom I discussed last week that they were willing to fight where the mainline political parties were not. This was also helpful in gradually making the nation's big businessmen come around to the Nazis. While they would need an electoral victory first to prove their cause viable, businesses saw the Nazis in a similar way to how their counterparts in Italy had seen the fascists back in the early 20s, as protectors against revolution when the central government refused to act in the manner that they wished. Hitler himself around this time was entering his prime as a public speaker, and as people became more fearful and desperate, his personal charisma started having more of an effect. People started looking to him personally for salvation from the woes of the day, and his forceful, downright manic delivery presented an image of certainty that other politicians lacked. Never mind that the contents of his speeches were overwhelmingly vague, focusing on conjured enemies, both racial and political. He was untainted by the failed establishment, who themselves had fallen prey to humiliating internationalism. And that was also a secret to the Nazis' upcoming success. The establishment parties didn't notice until it was far too late how sentiment was turning on them. Bruning, Hindenburg, and Schleicher all believed that the voters would respond to the collapsing economy by rallying around what they considered their empowered government issuing legislation free of Reichstag oversight. In actuality, their deliberate constitutional crisis simply drove more people towards the Nazis. The conservatives didn't really notice, though, even when in spring 1930, internal polling had begun to indicate a drastic realignment in support. This was borne out in various local elections, which, starting in 1928 and escalating as Hitler began taking center stage in the public resistance to the Young Plan, started seeing an uptick in Nazi support. Nothing drastic just yet, but the Nazis started getting closer to 10% vote shares rather than, say, zero. In the state of Thuringia, they picked up over 10% of the vote and became part of the local government. But despite the uptick, the Nazis were still seen as mere street thugs. They didn't matter for anything in the eyes of the establishment. Which, to be fair, the first half of 1930 wasn't all cheery within the NSDAP. While the conservatives spent the first half of 1930 undermining and removing the Mueller government and getting Brunings off the ground, Hitler was occupied in dealing with the Strasser brothers. The pair independently ran their own newspaper outside the party's control, and Otto loved criticizing Hitler and his cronies. Goebbels spent months pushing his leader to do something about them, but Hitler refused to force a confrontation. Finally, Otto went too far and in early April published an article which broke the news that Hitler would be ending his collaboration with the network of far-right parties led by Alfred Hugenberg that were resisting the Young Plan, on account of the group's failure to prevent the plan's approval. 
Hitler had not authorized the news to be leaked and retaliated by removing Greger from his post as propaganda chief and handing that over to Goebbels, who would remain the Nazis' propaganda master until his suicide in 1945. Uh, there was little he could do directly to Otto himself. He had no titles in the party already and operated at its fringes, so Greger had to suffer. At the end of April, he denounced the Strasser clique during a two-hour speech to the party's leadership. But still, Hitler refused to get rid of them. He finally sat down with Otto on May 21st and tried to make an accommodation. He offered Otto the role of press chief, presumably so that he can keep a closer eye on him, but Otto refused. The two descended into an argument over how their ideology was supposed to play out, with Otto stating that, as leader, Hitler should subsume himself to the movement's ideas. To which Hitler very tellingly retorted that the leader was the idea. Otto said that Hitler wasn't giving the working Germans their due as participants in the movement. Hitler called Otto a Marxist and insisted that the masses were interested only in bread and circuses. The Nazi vision would be imposed from above once they were in power, and the people would be shaped to fit that vision. The meeting ended with both men still hating each other, and Otto made it worse by publishing their conversation. But national politics were heating up by the summer, and Hitler again left the Strasser brothers alone. Finally, at the start of July, it appeared that Hitler had summoned the wherewithal to expel Otto and his followers. Otto saw this coming and decided to do the whole you-can't-fire-me-I-quit thing, and he preempted Hitler on the 4th and left with 25 of his followers to strike out on his own. Goebbels crowed that the party's socialist wing had purged itself. Otto would himself fade into political oblivion immediately and eventually left Germany. Although the Nazis would not be quick in forgetting him, and even into World War II, its leadership was still calling for his head. He bounced around Europe for years until settling in Canada in 1941. He would prove to be an embarrassment, as while he was an open and still committed national socialist, he had not committed any crimes and was publicly anti-Hitler. He would eventually go back to West Germany in 1955, an unrepentant Nazi to the end. His departure from the party, though, signaled an end to resistance to Hitler's will from that quarter. The brown shirts were still a threat, but the party was his completely. Gregor Strasser, for his part, fell in line with Hitler and would continue to follow him for years. Although, as we shall see in future episodes, Gregor would have his own conflicts with Hitler, which did not go well for him. That long-running drama's latest installment dovetailed neatly with the Bruning government forcing the nation into crisis. The July 16th and 18th Reichstag sessions I covered last week that saw its disillusion also triggered automatic elections, scheduled for September 14th. The Nazis would pull out all the stops for this election, and all the careful work of building a national apparatus and cultivating an image of the fighting outsiders paid off handsomely. Party speakers had been recruited and trained, messaging had been customized for audiences based on geography, class, and urban-rural areas. Regardless of who you were, the Nazis had built up a section of their party to cater to their needs. Farmers could expect engagement with National Socialists who specialized in working with farmers, as could shopkeepers, students, professors, everybody. Assuming, of course, you weren't Jewish, any German could expect to be catered to. This was no longer the micro-party of the 20s. The overall tone pushed by Goebbels was borderline apocalyptic. This election wasn't just a war over material conditions, it was a war over the very soul of Germany. 
the voters were inundated with the message that the only way to reunite the divided and broken nation was through the person of Adolf Hitler, with the party as his tool. In the last month of the election alone, 34,000 public meetings across the country were held. The brown shirts were visible every day, promising a new Germany and attacking Jews and leftists. Hitler crisscrossed the nation, holding a major rally almost every other day. He promised strength where Weimar had only delivered weakness, a new utopia built around the singular German race. Suffice to say, none of the other parties could match the energy coming out of the Nazi camp, and none of them had a figure such as Hitler to rally around. One of the only bumps in the campaign came from the brown shirts themselves. While they were the front and center presence on the streets across Germany, many in the group felt they were still taken for granted. The Berlin branch actually mutinied in August 1930, demanding better payment for their work as the party proper spent lavishly on new, cushy offices and other luxuries, spending that angered the destitute brown shirts. They demanded that SA members be given three surefire win Reichstag seats so that they'd be properly represented. They tore apart Goebbels's Berlin offices, and while the propaganda chief wasn't there, they beat the hell out of the SA members guarding the place. And yes, I'll be getting into their rivalry later on in this miniseries. Hitler had to rush to Berlin to negotiate giving them more money. The SA accepted the increased pay, but Hitler fired Pfeiffer von Solomon and appointed himself supreme commander of the group. Later in 1931, he would call in an old ally, Ernst Röhm, to take over as the SA's chief of staff. Röhm had been serving as a military advisor to the Army of Bolivia since the aftermath of the Beer Hall Busch, but once he got the call, he promptly made his way back to Germany and rejoined the movement. The results of the elections were extraordinary. The Nazis increased their vote share from 2.5% to over 18. Their share of the Reichstag went from 12 seats to 107. They especially made big gains among the rural communities in the Protestant North, in several areas getting over two-thirds of the vote there. In one fell swoop, they went from being a minor party on the fringe to being the second largest in the nation, behind only the SPD, which itself had seen losses to the KPD. The communists claimed a 13% vote share and 77 seats themselves. Hitler and the Nazi leaders had expected big pickups. Hitler himself had stated a boost to 40 Reichstag seats would be a massive success. This, this was cataclysmic. Taken in conjunction with the uptick in support for the KPD, the German electorate had clearly voted that Weimar had outlived its usefulness. While the Nazis were not yet the biggest party in Germany, the election opened the way for future success. It had demonstrated that it could actually win an election, that it wasn't a fringe stance to support them. The respectable segment of the nation would increasingly turn Hitler's way after the September election, creating a feedback loop of success. Germany's liberals were understandably despondent, but I don't know what else they could have expected. The far right was always going to hate them, and their own distaste of the SPD left them unable to build a partnership with the left to counter Brüning's work of dismantling the democracy. Now it was too late to do anything about it. New political battle lines had been drawn. The SPD was still the biggest party with 143 seats to the Nazis' 107, but as I just said, nobody wanted to work with them. They were split from the KPD over history and vision, so a left coalition was out of the question. Which was bad, because the urban proletariat was still against the Nazis, with less than 20% voting for them. The parties they did vote for, though, 
were loathed by the rest of the political spectrum. Strictly speaking, Bruning had enjoyed a successful evening as his Zentrum party had seen a pickup of a handful of seats to go from 61 to 68. Little problem, though, everybody else got cleaned out. If Bruning had hoped to build a new coalition, he was out of luck. There weren't partners available to actually do it. The SPD didn't want to participate in dissolving the Republic, and Hitler wanted the whole shebang for himself. Hugenberg would double down after the election and direct his DNVP, which had seen its support slip a little, to follow the Nazis' lead in calling for the removal of Brüning and the dissolution of the Republic. The final configuration of the government spoke to the weakness of all parties outside of the Nazis. Brüning refused to ally with the SPD, but the Social Democrats were unwilling to fight a political war that would undoubtedly force further elections, or worse, in their eyes, lead Brüning to bring the Nazis into the government. Hindenburg maintained his support of Brüning as his appointed chancellor, and the SPD decided not to press to have him removed, unlike what they did during the summer. He remained as chancellor of an unelected government without a fight, as he was recognized as less dangerous than Hitler. As for the rising Fuhrer, he was beside himself with joy. The election was success enough, but the results catapulted him not just into national news, but world news as well. The victory was enough that he was a genuine contender to be the nation's leader, and the global press started working to learn about Germany's new political star. And oh boy, did he ever love the attention. His favorite thing already was for people to ask him questions to which he could make long-winded answers. So the spike in interviews was right up his alley. And immediately after the election, there was an incident which just further expanded his profile. The popularity of the Nazis among army officers was steadily growing, especially among the younger ranks. Schleicher and Groner worked to clamp down on this support, as the NSDAP was not a desired partner for their ambitions. But support continued to grow regardless, and eventually three officers were caught having discussions about staging a coup and installing Hitler as dictator via the army. They were arrested and, starting in late September, put on trial. Hitler saw an opportunity to assure the nation that he would only act within the legal framework of the Republic, even as he sought to destroy it, and that he had abandoned the tactics of 1923. Hitler supplied one of the defendants with the Nazi party's own lead attorney, Hans Frank. Frank quickly called in Hitler as a witness, much to the dismay of the trial judges. Not dismay out of political disagreement, but because they knew Hitler was about to turn the trial into a circus. Something they warned him not to do, and he assured them that he'd stick to the matters of the trial. Of course, he lied, and as soon as Hitler took the stand, he started doing his thing. In full political rally mode, he assured the court that he would act completely within legal means, that under his future leadership, the army would become an embodiment of the people and the vehicle for national revitalization, that Otto Strasser had been the only revolutionary and he had been kicked out, and that November 1918 would be avenged, again, all legally. The courtroom hooted and hollered their approval, and the judges struggled to regain control. Goebbels blanketed the nation with Hitler's declarations made in the trial, reassuring the people that the destruction of the Republic would be conducted by the book. Ernst Hofstangl, Hitler's friend and now his foreign press secretary, spread articles abroad, reassuring the world that Hitler would respect decorum. 
which leads me to bring up where Hitler was personally during this time. As I pointed out last season, his biography is largely intertwined with that of the Nazi movement in general, so this is as good a place as any to do a little check-in. After September, the Nazi propaganda men would busy themselves with selling not just Germany, but the world on Hitler. Outwardly, he would be the Fuhrer, a man of singular vision and will who held his followers in thrall and sought to upend Germany and Europe in general. He was a throwback to an earlier, more primordial age, a crusader free from the taint of conventional politics and the compromised morality of a failed society. But underneath the propaganda, as we know from last season, the reality was different. Not to say that Adolf Hitler went unchanged from the successes, far from it. For years, he had lived either in squalor or a close approximation of it, with the party's meager resources being unable to support a comfortable existence for him. That changed very quickly, and not only did he acquire a swank new apartment in Munich, he also set up in the Kaiserhof Hotel when he was in Berlin, one of the city's most opulent. He moved beyond the company of the street fighters and rabble that had been his main audience for so long, and began rubbing shoulders with high society types and those with actual connections. Even as his inner circle began to solidify around him, he remained remote from them all, though. True friendship was elusive, and even men like Hofstangel and Goebbels admitted they couldn't be sure if they truly knew him. His life was the business of national socialism, and he didn't socialize outside of political circles. And even then, it was only about politics. Gregor Strasser would complain that the aloofness left Hitler stunted with regards to human interaction, which, hey, good call there. Keep in mind that Hitler for a long time lived almost as a monk, and even after moving into cushier digs, still refrained from eating meat, smoking, drinking, or generally just, you know, enjoying things in general. His main vice was just staying up into the wee hours of the morning watching movies. His love life was practically nil, although during these years he had some kind of relationship that has left historians guessing to this day. Hitler did not stay terribly close with his family, the exception being his niece Gelli, daughter of his half-sister Angela Robal. Angela was given the role of housekeeper at Hitler's Alpine getaway at Berchtesgaden in the late 20s, which at the time was a far more modest structure than what it would grow into. Gelli, though, moved into Hitler's Munich apartment in 1929. And here's the deal. The relationship was weird as hell. She was 21, he was 40. But oh boy, he loved lavishing attention on her. And as you might guess, not in a way at all appropriate between an uncle and niece. Now, under normal circumstances, I say that there was a messed up, abusive sexual relationship going on here. But this is Hitler we're talking about, so it's more likely the actual situation was even weirder. Because personally, I don't think they were in a physical relationship at all. Although I do think Hitler was sexually infatuated with her and, and emotionally dependent on her. At least as far as Hitler could be emotionally dependent on anybody. Hitler's chauffeur and bodyguard early on, Emil Maurice, stated that he clearly loved her, but he could never bring himself to admit such an emotional attachment. Maurice himself would get caught up in the drama when he started quietly dating Gelly in the late 20s. When Hitler found out, he fired Maurice. Don't cry for him, he focused on his other gig, being a member of the SS. Anyway, Hitler basically catered to her material whims, but when it came time for her to go out and have an actual social life befitting a young woman in her early 20s, 
he would freak out and either keep her confined or under escort by one of his men. This went on for years, and I'm going to skip ahead a little to September 1931. By this time, Gilly was fed up with being a pet of her uncle's and was prepared to decamp to Vienna to be away from him. He begged her one last time to return to Munich, and, making a huge mistake, she decided to do as he asked. She got to Munich and learned he wasn't intending to discuss their relationship moving forward, but rather, he just wanted her back in the apartment while he headed to Nuremberg for a major party meeting. This sent her into a rage, which Hitler brushed off on his way out. He took off in his car on September 17th, and she was confined to the apartments. Alone, her mood could not have been made better by discovering a letter to Hitler written by one Eva Braun. Hitler had been seeing her off and on quietly, and around September 1931, it was much more on than off. Gelly ripped apart the letter and stalked the apartment's rooms alone. That evening, the housekeepers heard a thud, but thought nothing of it. That morning, though, they found her door still locked. A locksmith was called in, along with Hess. As you might have already surmised, she had shot herself through the heart. Hess phoned Hitler in Nuremberg, and Hitler completely melted down, forcing his entourage to drive straight away back to Munich. For days, he simply paced around and lost himself inside whatever his mind palace looked like. The papers, though, especially the leftist ones, had a field day. Some focused on the lurid relationship between uncle and niece, many details of which were helpfully provided by Otto Strasser, while others conjectured that Hitler had arranged to have Gelly murdered as the relationship was inconvenient now that his fortunes were on the rise. It took a legal campaign from Hans Frank to squash the reports. Hitler was himself devastated and depressed, and it is unknown if he appreciated the hand he had personally played in the young woman's death. He would pull himself out of the depths the same way he always did, by getting back to the business of gaining power, this time colder and more distant than ever. As inappropriate as his relationship with Gelly had been, and it was very inappropriate, it had humanized him slightly. That was now gone, and if it could have been any more possible, the party and the movement were now all he really had. And in terms of actually leading that movement, he was paranoid and discussed decisions he would have to make with as few people in the loop as possible. And as was demonstrated in the feud with the Strassers, he would oftentimes work to avoid making a burdensome decision entirely. Part of why that was the case could be said to be a matter of responsibility, or rather, the lack thereof. If he took a firm stance on anything, then the blame could be pinned on him. Go after Otto too hard, and he could be made to look like a bully in the party. Or he could support a party policy that would cater to one group and make another mad. Better to make no decision, let his subordinates do as they would, and if things worked out, take the credit. Or if they didn't work out, blame the subordinate and move on. He kept in his new grandiose office space portraits of Frederick the Great, a king of Prussia and one of Hitler's idols, as well as a bust of Mussolini, a contemporary and idol both. But where both of those guys were workaholics, Hitler was anything but which was no different than when he led a micro-party, and would be little different after he became Fuhrer of all Germany. I'll be touching on it more, but one of the many reasons Nazi Germany was a basket case was that it had a remote, paranoid layabout as its dictator. You might reasonably ask how such a man could inspire devotion in those around him. 
The answer is that while he was lazy, he was simultaneously intense with people. While he was himself a hollow shell of a person, he could project sincerity and loyalty with a firm handshake and a glance of his steely blue eyes. When he really wanted to, he could convince a person or a crowd that he lived to fight on their behalf, and in turn, they were ready to give him their genuine loyalty. Which is also why last season, and today, I have been sure to include the underlings in the narrative. Hitler was the flag that they rallied around, but he needed them to actually execute his dreams. And their roles would only become more important the closer the Nazis came to power. Speaking of which, next week, we'll turn back to Germany in general after the September 1930 elections. The establishment would all of a sudden have to deal with a hooting gang of Nazis in the Reichstag, all the while the depression was just getting worse. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.